Well, uh, let me say good morning to you all. It's lovely to see you. And a big thank you to Scott, who's learning to do all the tech stuff. So thank you, Scott, for taking on the additional stress uh, of doing that. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm still a small box on the corner uh, because I've got some slides to put up in a minute. And so uh, we're going to think about baptism. Now, we've just finished Romans 8, and we're going to continue into Romans 9 at some point. Um, but I've only got two weeks until I'm away, and I didn't think realistically we could do justice to Romans 9, chapter, chapters 9 to 11 in two weeks. And so uh, because... Oh, up like that. Okay. Um, so uh, because we've got these two weeks and because uh, we've been thinking a little bit and asking questions about baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're going to do a mini-series on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And this is relevant to Romans, of course, because in Romans chapter 6, the subject of ba baptism comes up. And so one of the passages that we're going to go back to is Romans chapter 6. And I've got some things to talk about baptism. Um, and if from some of the points will be taken from each of those passages. Now, I just want to say from the outset that I'm not going to be able to say anywhere close to everything that could be said about baptism. So if I do leave something out that's important, I'm just telling you now that that is going to happen. So in sort of um, anticipation of this, what I'd like to do is make you a, an offer, an invitation. If there's something that you would like to know that I didn't mention about baptism, please get in touch and I'd be happy to talk with you about it. The other thing I'd like to do is make a recommendation, a recommendation of a book. And the book is called Water, Word and Spirit by someone named J.V. Fesco, and it is the best book on baptism I've ever read, and it will blow your mind or your money back guaranteed. Not guaranteed by me, but still guaranteed by someone, somewhere, I'm sure. It's not at all guaranteed. Just buy the book, it'll be worth it. That's all I'm, all I'm trying to say. Um, now, let me just tell you, so that's just as a way of introduction, if you didn't catch that and you want to find out later, again, be in touch. I'll be happy to share the details of the book with you. Um, now, let me say two things from the outset that I think need to be said and put everything else that I say today in context. The first thing is this, that baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you. Unfortunately, this does need to be said because there are many church traditions and movements that do teach that baptism in and of itself can save you. Um, so, for example, in Roman Catholicism, they have a belief that baptism as a sacrament can save you ex opere operato. In other words, in and of itself, it saves you. So there's a famous story about Tertullian, who was one of the uh, prominent theologians of the early church. And he caught some children who were playing on the side of the road and they were pretending to baptize each other. But because they were actually saying the words of the formula that the church uses, he said to them, you shouldn't have been playing this game, you're all baptized now. Your baptisms are all valid. Now we don't believe that. We don't believe baptism is a magic formula, that if you go through the magic formula, it does something magical to you. That's not what we believe. Baptism cannot save you. It is faith, as Tim has clearly said, it is faith in Christ alone, by the grace of God, that saves you. Now. The other thing to say is that just because we say that baptism is not 
or cannot save you, and that you can be saved without baptism, doesn't mean that it's optional. It doesn't mean that it's not important or even that it's not essential. It is essential. It's not optional. And it is of vital importance to your Christian life and to the church. So, with those two statements up front, let's explore a little bit more about what it means. So the first thing to say about baptism, and this is drawn from all those passages that we read earlier, and we'll, we'll dive a bit into that, is it is a sign of salvation. It is a sign of salvation. So baptism doesn't save, but it is the sign and seal of salvation. Um, what do we mean by that? Well, it means that in baptism, for one thing, God pledges to us. We see in baptism the sign of God's pledge to us that he has saved us in Christ. We see in baptism the sign of God's pledge to us. So think of, think of a wedding. And at a wedding, when a couple are standing up at the front and they're exchanging vows, the, each spouse will make a pledge to the other, will make an oath. They will exchange the rings and they will make promises. Baptism is like the wedding day of the Christian. And in baptism, we see God's pledge, his oath towards us. Now that you are mine, this is what I promise you. So the first thing that we see promised is union with Christ. This is really the key and the heart of the whole thing. You see that in Romans chapter 6 very clearly. So Paul here, if you remember, as we've gone through Romans, Paul is, is saying, well, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, if all that is true, then well, why can't I just go on sinning? And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Because that same saving grace through faith, that same gospel that saved you, is also now transforming you. And he says this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In other words, when Paul's saying, well, hang on a second, if you're understanding that the gospel is going to lead you, give you a license to live a life of sin for the rest of your life because now you've been saved, you haven't understood your baptism, he says. You've died to that and you've been raised again to a new life because through baptism, baptism is the sign of your union with Christ. You are bound with him, tied to him, in what some theologians have called a kind of mystical union. So that when he died, you died with him. And when he raised, you were raised with him. And Paul says, have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten your baptism? In other words, Paul is using baptism as something that Christians need to hold on to to help them to understand what's happened to them. It's a sign of salvation. But more than that, it's a sign of new creation. So when we talk about union with Christ, we're talking about the tip of the iceberg or the, or the climax of the story. 
the way that it makes everything possible. But to understand baptism fully, we have to put it in its context. Now, I'm just going to have to fly through this, and I hope that it stimulates you to think in a new way about baptism. Now, Mike, I've got a series of pictures. The first is this, thank you, is from Genesis 1 verse 2. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, I just want to point out some things to you. You have the presence of the Spirit hovering. That word for hovering, interestingly, in Hebrew, is, a, is, is taken from avian language, a, avian metaphors. Is that the right way of am I saying it right? Bird-like. Bird-like metaphor. It literally means to flutter. It's the kind of thing that, say, for example, a dove does. It flutters. And so it's saying that the Spirit of God is fluttering like a bird over the waters. That's the impression from the Hebrew. You've got the presence of the Spirit. You've got the presence of water. And you also have the presence of the Word. Because just after this, God speaks, let there be. In the next slide, you move from creation, you go to the next event, the flood. And what do you have in the flood? Oh, you have a dove. You have water. And you have Noah, the preacher of righteousness, who through him, the, the message of salvation went to the, the, the pre-flood world. So again, you have this theme of water and spirit and word in the flood. If you go to the next stage in salvation history, which is the exodus, and as Tim has pointed out, what you find there, well, you find, again, the spirit. How is the spirit present? Not as a dove this time, but as a pillar of fire and cloud. You have water in the Red Sea. And, of course, you have the word, because this is all being led through Moses the prophet, who takes them through the Red Sea to Sinai, where God's word is delivered to them. So water, word, and spirit occurring in every major event so far. Just as a matter of interest, the same thing you see again when they cross over the Jordan River to go into the promised land. So as God's people are being led into the land promised to them by God, again, water, word, and spirit. They do a kind of reenactment of the Exodus event. You go on again to the next stage in salvation history, next major stage, and that's the baptism of Christ himself. And so you have water, but you also have the Holy Spirit. And again, the imagery of the dove just descending upon him like a dove. That's deliberate language taking us back to Genesis. And of course, you have the word, a voice from heaven that declares, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am pleased. And then if you go forward uh, to what we commemorate today is the day of Pentecost, is that you have again uh, water, word, and spirit all present. And you, you think, well, where is the spirit present? Well, through the tongues of fire. Again, the pillars is, uh, of cloud, as Tim has drawn out already. The spirit is, is present through uh, the fire. But you also have the word, because when the spirit comes upon them, what do they do? They proclaim the greatness of God in various languages. But you say to me, ah, but I've got you now, Beck, because where is the water? There's no water here. <laughs> oh, yes, there is. There is water. There's water in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which is just after this. What happens? Well, Peter says to them, if you want to be a part of this, what do you have to do? Be baptized. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. 
So in other words, the water, word and spirit are all in the background, all the way through the Bible, helping us to paint this picture of what it is that baptism is. And what is common to all of these major events? Well, they are events of new creation, of salvation, of deliverance, of forgiveness, and of bringing about the new covenant. In other words, this is all God's saving plans and purposes. So when you get to baptism, water is the, the, the water part of that saving picture where the Spirit is present. We're born again by the Spirit of God, says Jesus. And we're born again by faith in the Word of God, says Jesus, say the Scriptures. And we're born again by baptism, by the water. Now remember what we said earlier, the water does not save you because it's all three of those things together that paint the picture of salvation. So without faith, there's no salvation. Without being born again by the Spirit, there's no salvation. The water in and of itself doesn't do it. But the water completes this picture that's been building for us all the way throughout the Scriptures that salvation is of water, word, and spirit. So when you think, for example, of what Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says to him, you cannot enter the kingdom. You can stop the, um, the, the slide now. Thanks. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born of water and of spirit. Now, why does he say that? Is he talking, is it some weird reference to our natural birth as a birth of, of water? Well, no. He's simply drawing upon this image of water, word, and spirit going all the way through uh, the scriptures. And so what that means is that as you and I pass through the waters of baptism, it's like we pass through the waters of judgment in the flood. It's like we're Noah on the ark, safe, while the waters rage around us. It's an ordeal. It's a judgment thing. It's why the Lord Jesus, when he spoke about his own death on the cross, spoke about it as a baptism. Isn't that amazing? That when he spoke about it in Mark chapter 10, and remember James and John, they come up to Jesus and they say, Lord, could you guarantee us a place at your right and at your left when we enter your kingdom? And remember what the Lord Jesus says to them? He says, well, can you drink the cup I am about to drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism I am about to be baptized with? So why does he associate his own death on the cross as a baptism? It's because on the cross he's suffering judgment for your sins and for mine. And so as he goes through the cross, he is going through the baptism of condemnation, the baptism of judgment. We have a similar thing in our own language where we talk about going through a baptism of fire. What we mean is it's a judgment ordeal. And so as you and I go through the waters, united with Christ, it's that same judgment that he went through, that the world went through at the flood, that the Egyptians went through at the Exodus, that same judgment we are going through, but safe, bound with Christ, in the ark, walking on dry land. So we are, it's a sign of salvation because we are new creations, 
because the waters of judgment have passed over us. That final day of judgment has already happened for us. And baptism is the sign of that. We've passed through the waters of judgment. We are united with Christ. And of course, all of this is part of God's new covenant. We've been brought into the new covenant people of God. And that's why baptism is the right of entry into the church. Because it's through baptism that we are publicly declaring a visible, formal, and public declaration of God's oath to us that we have been brought into the new covenant. So baptism is a sign of salvation. It's a sign of God's pledge to us. Now what that means is that the role that baptism plays for you is that, and, and this is, so in the evangelical churches we have this kind of tra tradition of well, asking each other, well, when was it that you were saved? When was it that you became a Christian? And we might give different answers to that. We might say, well, it was at a youth camp when someone was giving the word and I, the lights went on for me and I believed for the first time. It might be that actually there was some church who was preaching the gospel, inviting people to respond, and, and they asked you to put your hand up, and I put my hand up, and it was a really, really meaningful moment for me. But the New Testament... What it gives us as the day of remembrance for when it was that we became a Christian is not when you put your hand up or when you came forward at the altar call or when you tied a ribbon on a cross or anything like that or when you had a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. The moment of your becoming a Christian in the New Testament is baptism. That's the point you remember. That's your wedding day, if you like. Now remember... Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. So similarly to a wedding, if you asked me, well, when was it that I fell in love with my wife? I'd say, well, at first sight. No, it, it wasn't. Um, she did, or for her it was, not for me. But the, um, when did we fall in love? When did we commit to each other? When were we in a relationship together? Well, all that happened before our wedding day. It didn't start at our wedding day. But if you ask me how long have we been married, I'll give you the date of my wedding day, which is coming up almost 15 years ago. Can you believe it? So you see, baptism is for us the wedding day. It's not the moment we entered into a relationship with Jesus. It's not the moment that we knew that he was our Lord and Savior. It's not the moment that we committed ourselves to him and to follow him. But it is the moment we did that formally, publicly, and visibly. It is our wedding day of the Christian life. Now, because it is the wedding day of the Christian life, it is not only about what God has done for us. Here's the second point. It is also about what we are declaring to God. It's not about God's pledge to us only, but it is about that mainly. But it's also about our pledge to God. So when we're baptized, we are responding on that wedding day by saying, I will give you my faith and allegiance as my Lord and as my Savior. Again, this is the problem with some traditions, because they administer baptism to people who cannot show any signs of faith. For example, to infants. So one of the reasons that we do not baptize infants is because, properly speaking, that baptism is not only a sign of God's pledge to us, our salvation, it's also a sign of our pledge to him in faith and obedience. 
And so you can't really do that. You can't really do that if there is no credible profession of faith. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this. Of course, there are. Always there are. But as a general rule, you can't administer baptism to someone who has not made a credible profession of faith because faith is a part of what baptism is signing us towards, is pointing us towards. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking, given everything that we've looked at, why some Christians do think that baptism saves. Some of the language that we heard earlier, I don't know, Mike, could you put on the passage from to Peter uh, from 1 Peter 3, sorry, um, on the screen. I wonder if any of you noticed this. That um, that passage on, uh, uh, from 1 Peter 3 talks about baptism that saves us. Just say, sorry if, that's, if I've asked you to do something really awkward. Yeah, yeah it looks like I have. Don't, don't, don't worry, Mike. It's fine. Um, so 1 Peter 3 talks about, it uses the, the wording, baptism saves us. You might think, well, yeah, but you've been painting this picture. Water, word, spirit, all of these three things are present in the act of salvation all the way through the Bible. Why would that be any different at baptism? And the answer to that is that, well, we have to remember that it's a sign. It's not the salvation itself, it's a sign pointing to salvation, but also we have to be more careful about the way that we use Scripture. So, for example, in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, it says, believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll be saved. In Acts 2, it says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins doesn't say the word believed. So is it that suddenly we've stopped believing in belief and we're just replacing belief with baptism? Then, to make it even more complicated, you've got some passages in Acts 16, for example, that just talk about no need for, don't mention repentance or baptism and just say, believe and be saved. Now, the, the best way to account for all of this is not simply to say, well, I believe that baptism saves and my proof text is Mark 16 verse 16 or 1 Peter 3 and someone else says no 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 I believe baptism doesn't save and my proof text is Acts 16 31 what we all have to do is account for the language of all of these verses how do they all fit into our understanding of baptism And the answer, I think, is that faith and repentance and baptism all go together so intimately in the scriptures that Paul uses them interchangeably. Romans 6, he says, remember your baptism. He doesn't say remember your faith, and through faith you were united with Christ. That would be true. He doesn't say remember your repentance, and through your repentance you were united with Christ. That would be true. But he says remember your baptism. Why? Because your baptism is the outward, visible sign of your faith and repentance and union with Christ. In other words, he's saying go to the God-given, visible representation of what happened to you in Christ. That's why he highlights baptism. Why is baptism highlighted in Acts chapter 2? Well, because we've already said it's tied to the Pentecost event. It's tied to the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter makes clear that that baptism is the water part of the water, word, and spirit combination that we're seeing in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the, the spirit. And in Colossians chapter 2, makes this very clear. Could you go to that passage, please, Mike? It's the next one. Colossians 
Colossians chapter 2, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And in him you also were circumcised, that is, brought into the covenant people of God, into the new covenant, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. How were you raised with him? Through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, Paul's not saying it's baptism that does this to you. He's saying baptism is the sign of the faith and repentance and, uh, th that does this to you. So baptism is the sign of God's pledge to us, our salvation. It's also the sign of our pledge to God, our faith and allegiance, which is why you have to be able to give a credible profession of faith before you are baptized. But the third thing is, and this is the thing that I think we overlook, and I'll only mention this very briefly, is that baptism is a means of grace. So again, we often overreact here. Because, say, for example, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, they say that baptism saves you. The rite of baptism in and of itself saves you. And we want to push against that and say, no, 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 that's, that's missing out a whole bunch of stuff that the Scripture is saying about the need of faith and repentance. You've got to have all of that in there in your understanding, not just baptism. But sometimes we push it too far to say that, well, it's only a symbol, and really, apart from its symbolism, it does nothing for us. But that is not what the Reformers taught. That's not what the confessions in our tradition teach. And I would argue that isn't what we should think. That isn't what the Bible teaches either. So again, that verse from 1 Peter is very important. Because it is saying what the Holy Spirit uses baptism to do in our lives. And if you have that passage open in front of you, you will see that it is the pledge of a clear conscience before God. You see that? Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. In other words, what the Spirit does when you and I are baptized is that the Spirit uses baptism to seal upon our conscience that we have a clear conscience before God, that we are forgiven, that we are new creations, and that we have been brought into the new covenant. The waters of judgment have passed over us. There is no condemnation for us anymore. And the Spirit uses that baptism, to seal that upon our conscience. But not only for the person going through baptism, but also for the people who are watching someone be baptized. In other words, for the whole church. As we see someone go through the waters of baptism, it is like a visible preaching of the gospel to us. So we see what, and we're reminded, and the Spirit uses it as something that is happening and has happened to us. Baptism is a sign of our salvation. It is a symbol of our faith. And it is a means of grace to those who have put their trust in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you so much that you teach us 
more about salvation and all you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you have given to us these signs and symbols to help us to gain a fuller understanding of all that has been done for us in Christ. And so, Father, we pray and we ask, please help us to see these things not only as an ordinance, something commanded by the Lord Jesus that we have to do, but more than that, to see something precious that the Spirit uses to enrich and encourage and equip us for the Christian life. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.